I want you to stop for a moment, close your eyes and picture yourself in the middle of your perfect day. It might be real, something you've done before or maybe even do regularly or maybe it's a day you've only ever imagined, your perfect day. But whatever it is, it's the sort of day that makes you stop in the middle of it, take a deep breath and sigh, oh, this is the light, this is what I was made for. Have you got something in your mind? Well, open your eyes. Put your hand up if your day involves being somewhere in God's creation. A few people, yes. Uh, the beach, the mountains, the bush. Uh, put up your hand if you were sharing that day with someone else. Hand up if you're on your own. Ah, okay. Interesting. Uh, well, I hope you're not too disappointed, but I need to drag you back from that perfect day, back to Ashfield, back to Genesis 2. Uh, because Genesis 2 is also a picture of life as good as it gets. It's a picture of the way things were meant to be. It's also about enjoying God's creation and about sharing it with someone else. I hope you notice it's a different picture from Genesis 1 that we looked at last week. It's not contradictory. It doesn't follow straight on. Uh, it, it's not uh, you know, time-based. It's a more intimate and close-up picture. Uh, maybe there's some of you that are into video games. There, there are two basic sorts of video games. Some video games take a view from the top. You know, you're looking out and you see, you know, like Minecraft or something like that. You see everything laid out before you like a map. It's the whole country, you plot strategies and move armies around, you reinforce cities. Uh, then there are games where you see what the character sees. Uh, you're right in the middle of the action. You're looking through the windscreen of the racing car. Uh, or you're looking through the night goggles of the commander as he moves through the building. Uh, it gives you a very different perspective uh, of a game, depending on what your view is. And that's the sort of difference as we move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. It's a change of view. It's a move from viewing from the top down to viewing outwards from the perspective of uh, the, the player. Genesis 1, a view from the top, the big picture, looking out across the whole universe, a view from God's level. But here in chapter 2 we're moving to this close-up view, to this horizontal view, if you like, from the widescreen to the small screen. This is the intimate view. It's focusing on one man, one garden, the same game, it's just a different point of view. Uh, it's the same way journalists will cover any news story. Maybe a newspaper or a magazine article or even a show like A Current Affair, uh, they may be just describing something broad and theoretical, something that affects the whole country. Rising petrol prices, obesity in children, preservatives in, uh, preservatives in food or, or tax cuts. And they start off by giving you uh, all the information. They give you the facts and the figures and the policies and the big picture. If you like, that's your Genesis 1 coverage. But then what do they do? They zoom in on a human interest story. Uh, how all of this big theory affects real people, a real family or a real child or a real household. How the large scale affects people on the small scale. That's what we've got here in Genesis 2. You can even see, it in the, see this change of focus in the name that's used for God. Uh, so chapter 1, all the way through, the, the, 
it should say in our English Bible, God, which is a translation for the, for the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the, it's the, the title or the, or the general purpose name for any God. But when you get to chapter 2 verse 4, the title or the name used for God becomes the Lord God, which is the translation for Yahweh Elohim. Uh, it's a name, the personal name of God plus his title. And so chapter 2 is about a personal God, someone who reveals himself through his name, who makes himself known to his creature. In fact, the only person who uses God as the title in chapters 2 and 3 is the serpent, which is interesting. Every other occurrence in 2 and 3, it's the Lord God, the God you can know personally, who has a name. So there's, there's a difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2. We see this sort of thing in, in other ways. Chapter 1, we see God speaking from outside his creation. But here in chapter 2, God is getting his hands dirty. He's taking a hands-on approach to his creation. He's in his creation. Just sort of skim through the chapter with me. He's making, he's creating, but it's not so much by his word. Verse 7, he's forming or moulding or breathing. Verse 8, he's planting and placing. Verse 9, he sprouts trees. Uh, Down in verse 19, he's forming again. Uh, Verse 21, Eve comes on the scene and what does he do? He puts Adam to sleep, he takes a rib, he closes it up, he builds a woman, he brings her to Adam. They're all very human sorts of things to do. God is getting up close and personal. Put the two chapters side by side. Chapter 1, God teaches us that God is separate and different from his creation. He's powerful and holy. He's controlling and creating simply by his word. Uh, The big word we use is he's transcendent. Chapter 2 teaches that God is also, at the same time as being transcendent, he's close and personal and active and involved with his creation. The big word we use is imminent. He's transcendent in chapter 1, he's imminent in chapter 2. It's a curious combination. It's hard to understand. How can God be both transcendent and imminent? Well, it's a question that the whole Bible addresses. It answers the question of how a transcendent and pure God can be imminent and personal for us. You want to know the answer? Read the whole Bible. It's a puzzle that's ultimately solved when those two axes intersect in Jesus. The God-man, the transcendent, eternal God who becomes frail, imminent man. That's off into the future. Here in chapter 2 we're seeing the imminent God who's up close and personal with a man. So let's look at some of the details. Have a look at verse 7. He doesn't just make man. There are two steps. He he moulds man. He scoops up the dirt from the ground and sculpts a man. Verse 19, that's how he makes the animals as well. But there is a difference between this man and the rest of the animals. Uh, Secondly, he, he breathes Uh, his breath or the spirit of life into him. It's the same word, breath, spirit, same word. Uh, He breathes into him. He's not just physically alive, he's spiritually alive. 
in a way that the animals are not. Human beings are both flesh and spirit, moulded by the hands of God, breathed into by the breath of God. Human beings are flesh and spirit, both are good. We can't ignore one and not the other. There's an earthiness about life as well as a spirituality. True life is about enjoying and participating in the earthiness of the world. True life is about enjoying food and wine and work and fishing and swimming and riding a horse and sex. But life is also about things that you can't see. Uh, There is a spiritual side. It's about longing for better things in a world to come, things that require faith. You've got these two sides. Some Christians in the history of the church have separated the two and said that the spirit is good but the flesh is bad. And so there's been all sorts of ridiculous teaching about marriage being bad or sex or food or any physical appetite uh, are evil and need to be squashed and killed. Or else false teachings from Christians that the, the world is bad and that to remain pure you need to step out of the world and just focus on the spiritual. And so there are monasteries or nunneries or people become hermits or they live in communes and never actually interact with the world that God's made. But that's not the human life God's made. We're spirit and body and both are good. Well, that's where Christians have gone off track. But of course there's the rationalists and the humanists that we come across every day. They get it wrong too. They say that we're only physical and that you're a fool if you believe that God is real. They say that humans are nothing more than chemicals. We are only body, no spirit, no God, nothing spiritual, just earthy flesh. What does that mean? Well, it means human life is worth less... uh, is worth about the one dollar that the ingredients that make up our body will cost. Human life is worth one dollar if you think that we are only physical. There's nothing inherently precious about human life. But Genesis 2 says all human life is valuable because God has breathed his spirit into us. We are living self-aware, eternal souls. We are not worth one dollar of ingredients. We are aware of death and eternity. We are aware of God. We are aware of ourselves that we are more than a physical body. Animals can't do that. That's something about God making us and breathing his spirit into us. But there's more we can learn about us and our creator. He's a God who's communicated with us. There in verse 16 who's intimate and involved. He doesn't just make and leave us. He's not the watchmaker who winds it up, who winds up his world and then walks away. He guides. He makes and then he guides. His guidance is about rules and boundaries, but there's also freedom within the boundaries. He's made us. We're totally dependent on him. He's given us all we need, but he's also made us free to make choice, to make our own independent choices. Do you see that? We're free to, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You've got the freedom. All, all of them are good to, to eat and good to look at, 
It's your choice. But at the same time, there are limits. There's one tree Adam couldn't eat from. There's freedom within boundaries. And as we find out soon enough, being made like that, being made with that ability to choose, has huge consequences for the world. Well, that's man and God. What about man and the garden? Well, the first thing to notice is that this is a garden that's separated from the rest of the world. Uh, Verse 8 suggests that God had made man somewhere else and then took him and placed him into the garden. And the idea that we're meant to think of, I think, is that of a walled garden, like a king's royal garden. And if we're to make anything from geography, it's a garden which is on a mountain because uh, it's the source of the four rivers that flow down to water the world. A garden that's uh, enclosed, that is uh, elevated, Uh, it's lush and succulent and life-giving and just like a king's walled garden, it's full of the very best of plants. Great to eat, beautiful to look at. And in particular, two special trees, verse 9, they're both in the centre of the garden, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one that the man can eat from and, and we assume that he does eat from it because there's no death yet, but the other tree is forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It represents the desire to choose what is right and wrong, to be morally independent Uh, But we'll focus more on that tree next week. There's the garden. Down in verse 15, the man is given work. Uh, God the king appoints his royal gardener to tend his royal garden. Caring, nurturing, growing, even naming. Naming that shows authority. But also in a limited sort of way. Naming is about about creating, just as his creator does. Chapter 1, it's God who names things, but here we see that he delegates that authority to to man. And and so this whole picture of God and man and man in the garden is about life as good as it gets. Except, for all the good things in the garden, there's one thing that's not good. Uh, We get to it in verse 18. Uh, Up until now, everything God has created, he said, is good. But here he says, it is not good for the man to be alone or make a helper suitable for him. Uh, we're made for relationships. Uh, we're made to share the workload. We're made to communicate. It was interesting that I reckon maybe half of you imagined your best day to be on your own. We like time to ourselves, but I think if we were honest, we probably wouldn't want to be uh, abandoned or shipwrecked on a desert island only by ourselves all the time. Because the reality is, if you're, sh- if you're with the right person, then a pleasure shared is a pleasure doubled. When you're with the right person, a pleasure shared is a pleasure doubled. You see something beautiful, you see something funny, and you just want to tell someone, don't you? You want to tell that special someone. And so your favourite day, uh, for many of you included, someone to share it with. A pleasure shared is a pleasure double. What, what do you do? What do you see people do when they get their re- meal at a restaurant? Pull out the phone, take a photo, straight up on Instagram, so everybody can, everyone else can get some enjoyment from their food or feel jealous of what they're doing. 
Uh, pleasure shared is a pleasure double. It's not good for man to be alone. Uh, we are made to share the workload. And so God works through the options of who might share the workload. Verse 19, the animals parade through, all shapes and sizes, noisy and quiet, friendly and shy, strong and weak, large and small. Some are good for one thing, some are good for another, but there's not one which is, which is suitable. God needs a suitable helper, one who complements, who fills out, who makes up the shortfall that man has. We've mentioned it before, but that word for suitable is a composite word in Hebrew that literally means like opposite him. There was no helper that is who was like opposite him. In other words, what's needed was someone who was similar but different, someone who can fill in those areas in which the man is making because he can't do the job of looking after the garden on his own and the animals just don't cut it. And so God decides to start from the beginning. Verse 21, he takes a rib from the man and he makes a woman from the rib. The only creature not made from the dust. Man, animals, all made from the dust except the woman. And he brought her to Adam. Uh, Matthew Henry is often quoted here. Not sure if he's right about why God used a rib, but I like the, I like the sentiment. Matthew Henry says, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. There are as good of reasons as any, I think. We, we talked about it at Home Group on Friday night about wire rip and uh, I don't think we came up with any better answer than that. Uh, let's allow Adam to keep continue the story. Verse 23, he wakes up, his, his ribs are a bit sore, he gives it a rub, he opens his eyes and there in front of him is the most beautiful creature he has ever seen. Suddenly he forgets all about his sore rib. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, was, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I like the RSV translation a little better here. It says, this at last is flesh of my flesh. <sighs> Finally, he's been through the rest, now the best. A perfect match. The Hebrew for man is ish, she, she'll be called isha, from man. And there's similarity and diversity and unity. She's from man, she's similar, but she's been made to be a suitable helper, one who's like opposite him. And that helper word, uh, we mentioned it before, it's not a junior assistant. Uh, It's not an inferior. It's a word used in the Bible in other places of God himself. God is the helper of Israel. And so this woman is someone who makes up for man's shortcomings, who fills in his gaps, and so there's diversity as well as similarity. Together they can do what man, man can't do on his own. Diversity and unity. The writer concludes, verse 24, what this first marriage means for every marriage that comes after. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. Man and wife become one, a partnership, a unity illustrated by the sexual relationship. Two become one. 
the way things were meant to be. Uh, Verse 25 adds that the couple were naked and felt no shame because they're one. Shame comes from secrets. Shame comes from sin and guilt. It's a picture of a relationship that's perfectly open and intimate and comfortable. And so the chapter comes to a close with everything in its place, every relationship in perfect balance, man and God, man in the garden, man and woman. It's a balance that doesn't last very long. It lasts as long as a full stop, really, and a big number three, because the very next sentence shows the dark storm cloud that build. But before we get there, there's a few practical lessons, I think, that all of this means for marriage. Firstly, if you're single, uh, this chapter says it's a good thing to want to get married. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage is certainly a blessing. It is not good for people to be alone. God took steps to find, to provide a partner for Adam. It's, a, it's right for you to do the same. But let me add this. Even though marriage is good, it is not that good and singleness that bad that it's worth shortcutting God's intentions and settling for second best, such as marrying a non-Christian or the wrong person. Marriage is not that good. Life begins with God at the centre. It's designed with him right there. It'll never work out well to shortcut, to ignore his design. God has given you, as a single person, a wonderful gift with church families. You might think that's a bit of a booby prize and a second second best, Uh, but churches, when we're working well together, can go a long way to helping meet the emotional needs of singles. Good single relationships are better than a bad marriage one. I think it says something for us too, who are married in churches, uh, we need to recognise that our single brothers and sisters, churches, uh, we pay an important part for them. We need to make sure we include them, that we go out of our way to remember and notice them. As a general rule, activities and friendships are more important to single people than they may be to you, uh, who already has a spouse and family and a support network to support you. So I think this says something to single people. Secondly, it says something to those of us who are parents of married uh, children. This passage tells us that we should let our married children leave so that they can join, they can cleave to their spouse. Uh, We need to let our kids build their one flesh, their united relationship. Uh, Parents, we should support our kids without being a busybody. Uh, we should offer advice only when it's asked for. I can see a few heads nodding there. Uh, Your child, if they are married, has a new allegiance now. Their husband-wife bond is stronger than your bond to them as a child. That's the way God designed it. You may think you know better, but God has said, let them leave and cleave. Thirdly, I think these things have something to say if you are a married couple without kids. Maybe you're not ready for kids or maybe you uh, are struggling or can't have kids. Uh, I think sometimes parents with children can make you feel like second-class citizens, that you're incomplete, 
But you know what Genesis 2 says? It says that husband and wife, you are complete. You are a family. You are one, even without kids. Fourth, it has something to say for families who have kids. It teaches us that the husband-wife bond is stronger than the parent-child bond. It's only your spouse who you are one flesh with. Your spouse relationship is the foundation for your family. Parents don't fall into the trap of thinking that while the kids are young, you can sacrifice your own relationship so that you can focus on the kids. The husband-wife relationship, that's the foundation. It's the most important aspect. Uh, Sometimes those of us who are parents think that if we put our kids before our spouse, that we're really looking after our kids, that we're showing our love to our kids and and yet often it's it's not about the kids. Often it's about us uh, and our insecurities and our inadequacies and our hurts. Maybe it's easier to focus attention on kids than to uh, move away from our relationship with our spouse. It becomes hard work after years. Maybe it's easier to throw your attention on kids. That's actually not going to help the kids in the long run, ironically, because it's having a strong husband-wife relationship that will make a family strong. Kids feel secure when they know mum and dad are committed to each other and that they're strong. That's what they want. Well, there's a few practical things. Take those for, they're from me, not from the Lord, but take them for for what, uh, what they are. Well, that was then. Uh, that was the paradise of that first perfect marriage. But uh, I think those of us who are married, if we're honest, marriages are far from that perfection. But rather than be discouraged, let me finish with a final encouragement. There is hope. Uh, marriage, life, is not the way things were meant to be now, but one day it'll be restored, it'll be transformed. In fact, it will be better than Eden. I love Genesis 21 and 22. They describe eternity. Uh, Rather than a garden, we have a city. Uh, A city that is modelled on Eden, though. Uh, A source of uh, rivers. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Eden itself is modelled on uh, the New Jerusalem. But it's interesting, isn't it, that it's a city? The thing about a city is you're never alone in a city. You're surrounded by people. Uh, It's always about relationships. Uh, But the relationship that's really focused on in this last city, the New Jerusalem, is the relationship with God, who just like Genesis chapter 2, will be imminent and with us the way it was in the beginning. Uh, So close your eyes and listen to this perfect day a day that will make you stop and think and say, well, that's the life. That's the life that I was made for. Genesis 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 
There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What a day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've moved from one end of the Bible to the other and we're astounded that you would come to us and involve yourself with us, that you would join yourself to us. At the moment we see that dimly, we catch a glimpse of it, a whisper. We long for that day when we will be fully and completely and eternally joined to you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who became one of us. We thank you for his spirit living inside us, a down payment of our eternal future inheritance. We thank you for your plans, Lord. We thank you for marriage. We thank you for friendships. Uh, We thank you uh, for our church. We pray that our church would be a place of uh, acceptance and relationship and warmth and openness and honesty and forgiveness and inclusion and that in these things we might reflect a little of your plans uh, from the beginning into eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.